Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suter. This is where we disseminate something that is going on in the world, something of international intrigue, which is something that's going on in the world, and we break it down for you. And Dr. Keith does that expertly, has been a commentator in Australian media for decades. I was, was going to say generations, but you're not that old. <laughs> um, and uh, very well versed in all these issues, a couple of PhD on international relations and related sort of studies. And my name is Kate Mack. We've worked together on this podcast and in TV for a couple of years now as well. The turbulent 20s, it's in reference to the 20s, like we're going through right now, being 2020 yeah. and the decade ahead, which you don't reckon you're going to be here for, but I can tell you by the state you're in, you'll be here for a lot longer than that. <laughs> um, it's it's not going to get much better, Keith. <laughs> this is no, the bad this, news. Well, this is a very interesting article by um, two um, political commentators and historians, uh, Jack Goldstone and Peter Turchin. So uh, these people try to look for the patterns in history. Let me just make a general comment. What, how does history move? Why do, why do we go from one situation to another? Now, unfortunately, we've got students going through universities in Australia or the United States, the UK, where they're being brought up with a very nihilistic, postmodernist mindset, which simply says, look, it's just one damn thing after another, and then you die. So there's no pattern to history. So that is certainly a trend in some of the teaching that goes on in schools and universities. I put that to one side. For me, uh, the debate, is, as far as I'm concerned, is to say, yes, there is a pattern to history, but what is that pattern? Now, old-fashioned Marxists would say that everything is to do with class struggle and technology and one class replacing another. And in a sense, Marx never went out of fashion. Um, He's always hovered around the scene warning about the power of corporations, et cetera, which we hear a lot about at the moment. So that's at the left. And then you have at the far end, the other end, you've got other people who are saying, look, capitalism is the way of the future. Life is getting better. We're living longer. We're richer. And therefore, we should just leave it all to the market. And so economics is the driving force of history. So you you have a number of, of different ideas about what drives history along. As I say, the the exception of this are all the postmodernists that you have in universities who just say, look, there's no patent history. Don't try to make any sense of it. It's just one damn thing after another. Now, this article um, by these two writers looks at the role of population changes and how demography is a driving force. So remember, the Marxists would talk about class struggle. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who support capitalism, etc., who believe that economic growth is the driver of, of history. These are people who are saying it's actually the number of people that you've got. Let me give you an example uh, through which I've lived um, as, as an example of this sort of prediction. So very few people were born in the 1930s because of the Great Depression and then the early 40s because of World War II. The war ended in 1945. The soldiers came home and made up for lost time. And so we have this huge population bulge. So it begins in 1946 and finishes somewhere in the 1960s. But I I run it on for 20 years, so I would say 1966. So that is the largest single age cohort in the history of the Western world. And that is a tidal wave sweeping through history. 
and it shows the importance of demography. So by the time the baby boomers were teenagers, they were interested in sex, drugs, and rock and roll. All teenagers were R, but in previous eras, they never had any money. But by the 1960s, the teenagers did have some money. And so you get the invention of the pop music market, you know, you get Elvis Presley and the Beatles, all the things your mother would have told you about. So all of these old, old types of making music for the youngsters. And then the youngsters have now moved on, they're into middle age, and they're more worried about their superannuation and pensions than they're worried about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So, and hence, of course, we have all this attention, as we're noting in, our, in these talks, about pension crises and can we afford the elderly? This is all that debate. So this shows how demography can push things along. We saw it also um, with uh, predictions about the um, instability in the Middle East. Somebody um, predicted the instability, uh, which would get underway about a decade ago, simply by looking at the figures of young people in the Middle East. So all the Arab societies and Iran, which is Persian, all these societies have got a lot of young people. And it's young people who become troublemakers. By the time you reach my age, you're very comfortable with life and you're happy to go along. But if you're young, you want to be adventurous, you want to be risk-taking, etc. And so we've seen that in, in, the, in the Middle East. Now, these two authors, so Goldstone and Turchin, have made the prediction that the United States was heading towards a political crisis which has not been seen for 100 years. So Goldstone and Turchin made those predictions years ago. They were saying years ago, keep an eye on the, on the 2020s because it's going to be a rough period. And now they've gone back to look at their old arguments that they were making in, in different articles and are really patting themselves on the back saying, well, we got that one right because they're looking at things like the Black Lives Matters protests, the rise of the militant groups, um, it is interesting. It's another example about how people predicted the rise of Donald Trump without mentioning Donald Trump. In other words, that you have a number of people, and we've looked at this a few weeks ago. We were looking at the book about the, the rise of the populist movement. Now, no reference to Trump. It's just simply saying, look, you're getting this rise of a demographic shift, but we don't know who the leader is going to be, but we know how the numbers are going to stack up. And this is basically what they were doing. In one case, one of the authors made the prediction 30 years ago. The other author talked about it 10 years ago. And they said we're going to head into a rough period. So they're talking about, one, is a problem of the surge of labor that dampens growth in wages and productivity, while the wealthy elite seek to take a larger proportion of economic gains for themselves therefore driving up inequality. So you get this clash, what we would now call the 1% versus the 99%, right? They were, they were foreshadowing this without that use of the slogan. And also with Donald Trump, remember Donald Trump four years ago in his very successful presidential campaign, which created the biggest election upset since 1948, he was able to weaponize shame. He was able to say to people, you are losing out in society, vote for me and we'll change things. Tragically, he wasn't able to change things. But he certainly was able to perceive that there was this anger at the elite, the people who lived in San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles, who were making a lot of money compared with the people, say, the unemployed coal miners of West Virginia. So one is that the elite 
are taking more and more money for themselves. Secondly, facing greater competition for elite wealth and status, they tighten up the path to mobility to favor themselves and their children. In other words, the children go through elite schools, going into elite universities, etc. And they, there is this use of the word meritocratic, which was again used with a perfectly straight face. Remember the person who invented this phrase was Michael Young 60 years ago, who used it as a satirical term. He invented it, a whole new word. He did not mean it to be taken seriously by political scientists and economists, and yet here it is. It, it comes up again in, the, in this context. And then thirdly, anxious to hold on to their rising fortunes, they do all they can to resist taxation of their wealth and their profits, even if it means starving government of needed revenues, leading to decaying infrastructure, declining public services, and fast-rising government debts. Remember, these are predictions from years ago. But if you think about the United States at the moment, there are 50,000 bridges that are unsafe to travel over. That's well, they can't be closed down because they've got no money to rebuild them. On average, I think it's something like three bridges a week collapse in the United States. So you get a heavily laden trucks going over the bridges and they bring the bridges down. And the, is that the responsibility of the federal government? Well, or state government or local government. There simply isn't the money to rebuild them. This is government infrastructure which is decaying. In a developed nation. In a developed nation. What you would think is a developed nation. Yeah, exactly. So these two writers a decade ago, the other one 30 years ago, made predictions about the 20s are going to become much more turbulent than we have enjoyed. And they were talking about the conditions that prevailed in the lead-up to the great upheavals in political history from the French Revolution, which was 1789, through to the revolutions of 1848, which spread all the way across Europe, and also the US Civil War, and the Russian Revolution, which of course was 1917, and the Chinese revolutions that ran on for the first half of the 20th century and finished in 1949 when Chairman Mao declared communist China. So what they have done is, is to, they've created this model of demographic change to track a number of indicators of popular well-being, inequality, and political polarization. And that they start the model in the year 1800, and they then run it through for two centuries. So they look at the ratio of median workers' wages to GDP per capita. In other words, are people getting richer or poorer? Life expectancy, the number of new millionaires, their influence on politics, etc. So they've created a very sophisticated model for making predictions. And um, they're, they're, they're predicting that you're going to end up with some really big changes in America occurring in the um, in the 2020s. So what you see in the United States is that you get this crisis that, that emerges and then the Ameri looking at the American context, they then start to try to revamp themselves and they were able, sometimes you're able to avoid further destruction. So in the 1930s, when we had the Great Depression, it was possible to reduce inequality and strengthen the economic share of workers. And of course, this continued during and after World War II. And the company agreed on new tax policies 
and increased spending on roads and schools. So you get the super highway program of President Eisenhower, etc. And the 1950s were a golden age of worker progress and party cooperation. And even into the 60s and 70s, even though there were some new tensions. And then, however, by the 1990s, you begin to get a new wave of rising inequality and political divisions that get underway, and thus the seeds are being planted for the next stage of turbulence. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suda talking today in this episode about the turbulent 20s and I guess all the sorts of um, things that the world is is getting ready to face in this decade particularly, but probably really realistically, Keith, we're just gearing up for a new way of things. So, we, we, yes, what they're warning about is the 20s are going to get very – you think we've, we've gone through a bad patch recently? They're mm. saying it's going to be even worse. Um, so this article was written before – the November presidential election. If you're an historian, you don't worry about individual elections in this way. That you look for the broad trends in history, and they're spot on because they're saying if Trump loses, there are going to be a lot of angry people thinking that the Democrats stole the election, and that is exactly what has happened. So as we meet together now, we're still getting people who support Donald Trump saying that Joe Biden is not a legitimate president. He didn't win the election. It was one by being stolen. And, of course, it's worth bearing in mind that Donald Trump received more votes in the last election than he did four years ago. He received more votes than any other Republican candidate in presidential history. So it's a really great achievement on the part of Trump. Unfortunately, of course, for him, Biden did even better. But it's a warning, as they're saying, that Trump, without identifying Trump, they're just talking about these bigger historical factors, the growing gap between the rich and the poor, the anger that is being felt at the grassroots. There's this, well, and and they didn't predict the Black Lives Matters, but as a phrase, but they were identifying racial tensions in the United States. And then along, of course, comes along these these shootings of people of colour. So so they were, in a sense, predicting there would be racial unrest. And now what we know is that we can say, yes, the racial unrest is now... um, being triggered by police brutality and the Black Lives Matters. And so they they made the comment in this article, which was before the November presidential election, that Joe Biden needs to win big. And, of course, the problem is he didn't. The no. Seed, no. Unfortunately, it wasn't a decisive gap between no. winner and loser. And this this is the problem. And so that this this adds further to the anger. And they also make an interesting comment that someone like Donald Trump will be able to make exaggerated claims, partly because Americans no longer have an accurate sense of their own society. So, for example, um, if you ask a number of Americans who, uh, how many, what the percentage of Muslims are in American society, they get it wrong by 17 times. I'm not surprised by that. They over-exaggerate the number of them. If you ask them how did the majority of immigrants come into this country, legally or illegally, they would say illegally, and in fact 77% came in quite legally. And then so the problem is that due to this false sense of of impressions, it is easy to claim that millions of votes were wrongly cast by people who do not have the right to vote. Remember, this was a prediction made before the election and we're now living through it. Trump. 
foreshadowed it himself by saying that there was going to be fraud at the election. Yeah. He played that card well in advance. That's right. And they were predicting this for the turbulent 20s. So they're saying that you're looking at all these trends that are taking place. American politics has fallen into a pattern that is characteristic of many developing countries. So we're talking now about black Africa, right? Yeah. Where one portion of the elite seeks to win support from the working classes, not by sharing the wealth or by expanding public services and making sacrifices to increase the common good, but by persuading the working classes that they are beset by enemies who hate them, liberal elites, minorities, illegal immigrants, and want to take away what little they have. This pattern builds polarisation and distrust and is strongly associated with civil conflict, violence and democratic decline. And let's throw into the mix inaccurate media. And, oh, absolutely. You know, and the sources of information that are just made up. <laughs> yeah. Now, I don't want people getting too depressed. Let me just finish on <laughs> some of the optimism. So, you know, one of the things they said, well, look, the United Kingdom in the 1820s went through all of this. Remember, this is 50 years after the Industrial Revolution. So, you, and you were ending up with an elite group who wanted to maintain dominance within society. All sorts of developments were taking place. But it was possible to have peaceful change in the United Kingdom and they did that through the ballot box. The politicians saw the writing on the wall and agreed to say, yes, we will allow um, men and larger numbers of men to have the vote. Women didn't get the vote in Britain until the 1920s. But it did mean that some of the anger that was being pent up by people who said we're not represented in Parliament, that was then covered by the 1832 Reform Act, which took a lot of the anger out of the potential riots that you were going to get in the United Kingdom. Of course, from Australia's point of view, we picked up some of those rioters as people who came out to Australia. <laughs> so some of the ideas that we now have that makes Australia's political culture so good comes from that period in Britain when people were saying we should have secret ballots. The secret ballot is a British idea, but it's the Australians who implemented it first and it's now called the Australian ballot, the idea that you vote in private. So that was the reforms of the 1830s, which avoided Britain going down the path of revolution that we saw in Europe in 1848. Another development uh, was in the United States in the 1930s. Remember, this is when you have the Great Depression. In 1932, Americans voted for change. They voted for Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and he undertook a sweeping reform program to restore work and shared prosperity. So he increased the high rate of taxation and he gave plenty of employment opportunities. Labor organisations were strengthened, public works programs provided jobs for construction workers, craftsmen and artists. And so what they were able to do is they were able to mobilise a lot of the labour which was sitting around being unemployed. And so bringing together the British experience of the 1830s and the American experience of the 1930s, remember, if you look at the world in the 1930s, people had a choice. You could either go down the democratic route, which was the United States system, or you went down the violent route of Germany under Hitler, or Italy under Mussolini, or Japan under the, the military who took over in Japan, or the Russians, the, the Russian Revolution 1917. The Americans brought about a peaceful change. 
So you've got the British in the 1830s, the Americans in the 1930s. And the authors say the formula in both cases, Britain and the United States, was clear and simple. First, the leader who's trying to preserve the past social order, despite economic change and growing violence, was replaced by a new leader who was willing to undertake much-needed reform. So first of all, you need to have a new leader who will introduce dramatic reforms. And secondly, you need to carry the reforms out within an existing institutional framework. So you don't get rid of the current ones, but you just simply do it within the current existing, well, in our case, a parliamentary system. Yeah. And the reforms were pragmatic. So it's we're not destined to have turbulent 20s. It, they can be made a better society, but these two historians are warning us that if we're not careful, we're going to have a very turbulent 20s. And what can we do, Keith, each and, in the, and every one of us do to stop it? Well, our job is to make sure we're better informed and select the right sort of leaders. <laughs> there you have it. Dr Keith, as always, pleasure. Thank you. Global Truths was presented by Dr Keith Souter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Matt Dwyer. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.